0: Hello, I'm Kristen McDonald, and thanks so much for tuning in to Second Vision. If overeating or binge eating has got you down, then this is the show for you. Are you a constant dieter? Do you never reach your fitness goals? Are you preoccupied with your body or your weight? You could also suffer from uncontrollable binge eating. Many of us have trouble controlling the food monster to one degree or another. Dr. Glenn Livingston is a veteran psychologist and Ph.D. His new book is entitled Never Binge Again. Glenn is a former CEO of a multimillion-dollar consulting firm which serviced several Fortune 500 clients in the food industry. He has been featured in the New York Times, L.A. Times, Chicago Tribune, and appeared on many other media outlets such as CBS and ABC. I'm so thrilled to have him on today, and he's going to help us with that inner struggle with our food monster and prevent us from reaching for that extra piece of pie. How are you, Glenn?
1: I'm very good. I've been looking forward to this all week, and I'm happy to be here.
0: Oh, it's great. Well, your story is pretty amazing. I mean, I guess we'll start by, uh, you know, if you'd like to share your personal uh, story with food. You to, yeah. to write the book, and why why are you so qualified to speak on this subject?
1: So I'm not just a psychologist who worked with eating disorders. As a matter of fact, I, I was a child and family therapist. I, I sent eating disordered people elsewhere because I had a very serious problem myself. And in a nutshell, when I was about 17, 16, 17, I figured out that because I was 6'4 and pretty muscular, I could eat whatever I wanted to as long as I worked out for two and a half or three hours a day. And you know whole pizza, sometimes two, box of muffins, um, box of pop tarts, whatever you can imagine, I would eat at six, seven thousand calories a day, oh and my God, I didn't all the think starches. It, that was my thing that, yeah, pizza and chocolate really those were my things It usually started with chocolate right, and yeah and and I didn't think it was a problem. I thought it was a great thing. Until I was about 22, 23 years old and suddenly I was married and had two and a half hour commute each way every day and I had patience and I was going to graduate school and life just didn't permit me the time to work out like that. If I got two half hours in a week, I was probably lucky and I found that I started to gain weight, but more importantly, you know, I'm from a family of psychologists and I, I'm being a really good psychologist has always been the most important thing in the world to me. And being a psychologist means that you have to be very present with people. It's not just a puzzle solving intellectual process. You really have to lend people your soul. And I couldn't be present. I, I would be sitting with a suicidal client and I'd be thinking about when can I go get a pizza or you know, when, when can I go get some more muffins? Or get to the deli and dislodge my jaw and empty the contents of the tray into my mouth. Mm-hmm. And I'm exaggerating a little bit, but, but not much. No,
0: of course, it's an addiction. It's a, it's When it gets into your body, food is like a drug.
1: It, it's like a drug, especially some of the foods that are being engineered these days. Yes, yes. So, so it really disturbed me, and I got fatter and fatter. Um, two, about 260 is the most I ever weighed in, at. I believe I might have been up around 280 because I stopped weighing myself at some point, and I'm right around 200 right now. So I I was very disturbed by all this, and the doctors were telling me that because my triglycerides were 10 times what they were supposed to be, and there was so much cardiovascular risk in my family that there was a good chance I could die in my early 30s if I, if I didn't take care of this. Mm. But I couldn't. I just I just um I, I I tried everything you could imagine, and being from a family of psychologists and being a psychologist myself, as you can imagine, I, I went the psychological route and I figured maybe it's not what I'm eating. It's what's eating me. And so I went to see the best psychologists, psychiatrists. I took medication. I went to Overeaters Anonymous. I even, I, 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 never had children and I never commuted. I was working at home. So I had a lot of time to work in my career and I, I did a lot of consulting for, um, big clients, a lot of them in the food industry, usually Fortune 100 clients. And I knew how to do these big studies. So I figured I'm going to do a big study for myself. And over the course of about five years, I collected about 40,000 survey responses on the Internet. It's back when clicks were cheap then. And I found a couple of interesting things. I asked people what foods they struggled with. And I asked them about the areas of their life where they were happy, where were they unhappy, where did they feel stressed, a couple of other personality variables. And I, I found three interesting things, and I thought this was going to solve the problem. One of them was that people who struggled with chocolate, and that was my main thing. That's how my binges would always start. They tended to be lonely or broken-hearted. People who struggled with salty, crunchy things like chips and, you know, and, and pretzels and things like that. They they tended to be stressed at work, and people who struggled with chewy, um, starchy things like uh, bagels and bread and even pizza. They they tended to be stressed at home. And I thought, wow, this is really interesting. So now I just need to figure out how to solve those underlying problems, and then we can solve the eating dilemma.
0: Yes, it is. It is from the different uh, personalities and you know what we what we tend to go for. You know. Uh,
1: but I'm going to tell you up front that it didn't work. I'll tell you the road that it led me down actually led me to something that worked, but this didn't work.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: I'll tell you a story to illustrate why. So I I called my mom, who raised me and is also a therapist, and I said, Mom, you know I struggle with chocolate and I'm, you know, I'm in a bad marriage and so it makes sense that I'm lonely and brokenhearted, but what is it in my upbringing that could have set up this pattern? And she gets this horrible look on her face. This was on a Skype thing. And she gets this horrible look on her face and and this horrible sound on her voice. And she says, honey, I am so sorry. I am so sorry. And I said, what, mom? And she says, I'm so, so sorry. But, you know, when you were about one year old and you were a toddler, I didn't have the wherewithal to love you and hold you and feed you right when you came running to me because my father had just got out of prison. And I had idolized this guy my whole life and he was guilty. He was actually doing these things and I just felt devastated. And at the same time, your father, my husband, he was a captain in the army and they were talking about sending him to Vietnam. And I'm thinking, great, so I'm going to be a single mom with another one on the way and, you know, my husband could be killed in Vietnam and my father was a criminal and, you know, I don't really have anything. And I was just horribly depressed. And a lot of times I'd sit and stare at the wall, and I just didn't have it in me. So what I did was I got And you never knew
0: treatment. this, You never knew any of this, never... the background?
1: Oh none of that. No. Wow.
0: And you were how old when she told you this?
1: Well, I, I knew the part about him going to prison, but I didn't really know the timing.
0: Yeah,
1: um, yeah. I guess I, I was about 39, 40 when she actually told me.
0: Yeah, yeah. Huh?
1: what she apparently did was she kept a refrigerator on the floor and she'd keep a big bottle of cho- chocolate Bosco syrup in there. And when I came running to her to be held or fed, she'd say, Glenn, go get your Bosco. Oh
0: and I'd go my running, goodness.
1: Right. So I'd right. Go running into it. Yeah. Yep. Yeah.
0: Caffeinated and
1: all <laughs> sugar, sugar, sugar. So I'd go into a chocolate sugar coma. Mm-hmm, and that's mm-hmm. that was, that was the match that struck the fire. That's, that's so how it all got started. If this were the movies, then you would imagine that my mom and I would have a big hug and a big cry, and I would never have trouble with chocolate again, right? Right. But would, would you believe me if I told you that the problem got worse? That yes, absolutely, reason- of
0: course, because it's already in your system. It's, you're already acclimated to, to you know, a lifestyle of food.
1: Exactly. More so than and that, you'd have
0: to uncover all those, you know, they, like Dr. Bruce Liston says, so much of our unconscious thinking, you know, is our, our personalities are formed before age five. So that must have been mind-blowing for you to discover that.
1: It was pretty mind-blowing. But there was this voice in my head that made it kind of use the finding to make things work. And it went something like this. Hey, Glenn, you know what you're right Your mama didn't love you enough, and she left a great big chocolate-sized hole in your heart, and until you can find the love of your life and get out of this marriage, you're just going to have to go right on binging. Let's go get more chocolate now. Yippee, let's go do it. (laughs) And and so what I learned from that was that, first of all, it doesn't really matter what match struck the fire. Once these foods are in your system, they have a life of your own. And I, I thought about all the work I was doing with Fortune 100 food companies, and Realize realized that they were engineering hyper-palatable concentrations of starch and sugar and fat and oil and Toxins, and they're trying to hit our bliss points without giving us enough nutrition to make us feel satisfied.
0: Yeah, I was reading realized, about it in your book uh, last night. It's really scary.
1: It's really scary, and they get better and better at it, and it's perfectly legal. Mm-hmm. And then the, the advertising industry, they package it all up to make us feel like we can't live without it. And the addiction treatment industry says that we can't quit even if we wanted to. The best we can do is abstain one day at a time. So there's a perfect storm in our society that really...
0: Look at what happens on Madison Avenue to women, you know, speaking as a woman myself. You know, from the time you're 13 years old, 15, they have these, you know, in Glamour magazine or Cosmopolitan magazine, they have these models that that are in their teens, but they're supposed to be in their 20s. You know, you're supposed to live this idea of perfection, you know. And models are about the size of a coat hanger, you know. I mean, they're, they're so skinny now. Crazy. Yeah, it's really crazy. crazy what they do to all of us, you know, with, with advertising. Well,
1: well, well people think advertising doesn't affect them, but it actually affects you more when you think that because your resistance is down. Yes, definitely. And, and I think there's something like five to 7,000 messages per year that are beamed at us through the airwaves on the Internet about food. Oh, and goodness. maybe maybe a maybe a dozen of them are about whole fruits and vegetables. So is it any wonder Unbelievable. that people? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, so so what, what are, happened next then? I mean, so so many people think that obesity is genetic, or uh, you know, and there, I guess there are many different causes, right? Psychological and genetic.
1: Well, so I mean, you can't argue with the studies that show that there's a genetic component to obesity, but.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That's... There's a propensity to be obese that's inherited. The obesity itself, mm-hmm. you're not doomed. And if there's a statistical concept called percent of variance accounted for. And so if you look at some of the studies on the correlation between parents and children's weights, well, yes, they're correlated, but it's not a perfect correlation. And if you do the math, you find out that maybe you know, 25, 30% of obesity is accounted for by uh, your parents' obesity or not. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, mm-hmm. some people some people were dealt a worse hand than others, but the bulk of what happens still has more to do with how you play the cards than the cards that you were dealt. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I, I find that people get stuck and they feel like they're doomed when they had heavy parents, but you're you're really not. And my, my parents had trouble with obesity, and you know, I obviously had trouble for a while, but I'm anything but obese now. So, there's that.
0: So, wonderful. what happened? Congratulations. That-
1: Thank you. What happened next was that I was coming out of Overeaters Anonymous, and I was reading a lot of alternative addiction treatment literature, and I ran across a guy who wrote a book called Rational Recovery. His name is Jack Trimpey, and he works largely with drugs and alcohol. And I call those the black and white addictions, where people can quit entirely as opposed to food, where you got to take the lion out of the cage and walk him around the block a couple of times a day. Uh Uh-huh. But he had a concept which really flipped my paradigm, and basically, I, I'm I'm totally paraphrasing him, and and I don't mean to misquote him in any way. But basically, he pointed out that addiction is seated in the reptilian brain, in the kind of lowest part of our neuroanatomy, and whether you believe that God put it there or it evolved this way, what we know about the reptilian brain is that it doesn't really know love; it knows eat, mate, or kill. When the reptilian brain sees something in the environment, it says, do I eat it, do I mate with it, or do I kill it? And so when um, when you're spending all this energy trying to nurture your inner, water, inner child back to health, you're actually not really addressing the part of the brain that activates the fight-or-flight response that makes you feel like it's a matter of survival to eat that chocolate bar. You're actually dealing with a different part of the brain. And I, I realized I was just on the wrong track. And suddenly it became clear to me that this was more of a game of domination than nurturance, that it was all well and good to love myself. And I don't, I don't regret the you know, spiritual, emotional journey that I took trying to figure this all out. I, I learned a lot about myself and I think I became a more soulful person and met a lot of good people. But controlling your appetite has more to do with um, it's more akin to dealing with your bladder and all the biological urges that your bladder generates because in the end your bladder is just an organ that generates a very strong urge but you could, you dominate that urge and you say I will only go in a certain place at a certain time if I happen to really have to go in my mother in- law's living room i'm not going to just have at it i'm going to wait until I can get to a bathroom and excuse myself and do what I need to do in private you're totally in control. I mean, you take care of it, but you're mm-hmm. totally in control. And, or, or, you know, your reproductive organs, your testicles, your ovaries. We we don't go run out and kiss attractive people in the street because we can get in a lot of trouble if we do. We know that we have to control those biological herbs. So, so the urges. So, it's, it's more like, kind of more like the way an alpha wolf keeps the rest of the pack in line. If there's another pack member that challenges for leadership, that Wolf doesn't say, oh, come here, do you need a hug? That wolf snarls at that other challenger and says, get back in line or I'll kill you. Right? It's, it's a domination game. Wow. So this, is the, yeah. so this is the embarrassing part. It's a very simplistic, crude, primitive way that fixed things for me. Not immediately, but over time. I decided that I was going to have to draw very clear, bright lines so that I knew what healthy eating was and healthy eating wasn't. So, for example... I'll only ever have chocolate on the last weekend of the month. And then I would say, if I heard anything that suggested in my mind that I should eat chocolate on anything but the last weekend of the month, I would say, that's my inner pig squealing for pig slop. The chocolate is pig slop. Whatever it's saying is pig squeal. And I don't eat eat pig slop. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. I told you, this is kind of an embarrassing thing for our. No, 50 no, 50 I, 50 I, 50 I read
0: all about the pig last night, so it's our listeners. They're new to the pig, but I'm I'm familiar. <laughs>
1: okay, and, and, and I'm not talking about a real pig, which is a very sweet animal. No, of course. Talking, of course, it, it's a it's a mental construct. It's more like a wild boar. And yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, it's the monster. And it's
1: demon. Yeah. yeah, so I'm not advocating that we mistreat animals in any way. It's just just a way to no, 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 no. Of course, of yeah. course, of course. And and. As crude as that is, as primitive as it is, what happened was it, like, I don't eat pig slop. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. It would wake me up at the moment of impulse and give me a few extra microseconds to make the right choice. I'd remember who I was and why I made that rule in the first place. And slowly but surely, I was able to do it. I had to... So you almost turned
0: yourself off, in a sense, you know, by talking about the the pig and the... You know the pig slop. I mean, you got angry against the pig, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. Sometimes I would extend that to say S T F pig or F-T-S-U. Mm-hmm. And you talk extend. a lot about
0: self love in the book too. So it's just this is just an area of your, you know, um, your your brain, right, that you're addressing.
1: Well, so it's like a, a bad
0: force, a negative force.
1: People naturally feel better about themselves. If you look at kids when they get potty trained and they finally develop the um, the self control to go in the bathroom as opposed to the diapers,
0: their mm-hmm, life gets mm-hmm. a lot better. They have
1: a lot more mobility and they feel better about themselves.
0: Confidence. Master-
1: mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the natural outcome of this is feeling better about yourself, not worse. People, right. People get confused, right. think I'm calling them a pig. I'm really not. I'm just helping you to disassociate from your Urges so that you have choices, and choices make people better about themselves. Mm -hmm,
0: mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so the discipline when you say chocolate at the end of the month—that's not deprivation. That's just that's more discipline, right? That's a plan. You say indulge yourself ninety percent of the time, and ten percent of the time, no, ten percent of the time you can you can indulge, right? And ninety percent of the time you should not indulge.
1: Well, I don't tell anybody what to eat, so it's up to them. But if we were to take that example. Mm-hmm. I, the way that it's phrased is a guideline. And what the research is showing us now is that um, guideline, rules might be a little better than guidelines because if you use a guideline like I'm going to eat well 90% of the time and indulge 10% of the time, every time you're in front of a temptation, you have to make a decision. And the problem with that is that the research says that decisions wear down our willpower. Every decision you make wears down your willpower. There are only so many good decisions you can make over the course of the day. So if I say I will only ever have chocolate on the last weekend of the month, all of my chocolate decisions have been made all month long except for that last weekend, and I, I can use that willpower for other things. So I prefer people use, um, use rules as opposed to guidelines. You can still use guidelines for some things, but it, it works better and preserves your willpower if you can use rules as opposed to guidelines.
0: And did you create your sense. own food plan or, you know, just by common sense of what was healthy to eat, or did you, you also consult uh, Weight Watchers or other other places?
1: Well, um, yes, I consulted all sorts of nutritionists, and I read all kinds of books. And I, I find by the time people read my book, they have a pretty good sense of what would be healthy for them. And it's important to take responsibility for your own food plan, because what happens if you just decide you're going to follow Weight Watchers or this other thing, is your pig will eventually say, well, weight workers works for some people, but I don't think it's good for us. And in the meantime, until we find another one, we're gonna have to binge some more. So I, I tell mm-hmm. people, whatever you're gonna do, whatever source you're gonna use, make sure that you own it. Make sure you own it 100% and you're saying, this is my responsibility, if I wanna change this rule, then I'm gonna change this rule, but this is this is me 100%. And that's that's a big part of recovering in my experience.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I I never intended to publish this, by the way. This is just going to be a journal that I kept to recover myself. And I kept it for a lot of years. And um, it's just me versus my pig and all the crazy things my pig said and how I overcame that. And then things kind of came to to pass. I had the opportunity to publish it in 2015. And um, I, I did it as a favor to a friend who was the CEO of a publishing company and... It just took off, and we got six hundred thousand readers, and I think this really resonates with, with people. So, yeah, that's what happened. I think it's happened, wonderful,
0: but- for people on so many different levels—just yo-yo dieters and people who suffer from binge eating—or they have someone that they love in their life that they they want to help. You know, and I really admire you because it is a personal story, and uh, and 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 it's a, a very heroic way of the way you got over the eating. You know, by just identifying the demon, the monster, the pig. Um yeah. I'm enjoying the book. It's wonderful.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, and fr- from there, I started to understand that what I was really doing was just articulating the rules of character and giving people permission to develop the character that they wanted to develop. Mm-hmm. Because really what you're saying when you say, I, I only have re out the last Saturday of the month or the last Saturday and Sunday of the month, what you're really saying is, I'm not the kind of the person who eats chocolate during the, during the month most of the time. I only ever eat chocolate on the last day of the month. Or if you say that I only ever have pretzels in a major league baseball game, that's, that's the kind of person that you are. And it turns out we make the kind, of, the kind of rules for ourselves all the time without knowing it. So, for example, suppose you walk into a diner and there's a $10 bill on the table because the waitress hasn't seen her tip and there are no windows, there's nobody up front, there's no video camera, and the witcher says, I'll be right back, I just have to get your menu. Virtually nobody I talked to about this situation says that they would take that money. And I asked them why, and they say, well, that woman worked really hard for it, and I'm not a thief. And I said, so, as a matter of character, you have an unwritten rule for yourself, like I never steal, that prevents you from having to use your willpower to benefit yourself in a pleasurable way, regardless of the consequence, regardless of where or when it happens or if anybody would see you do it. And they'll say yes. And I'll say, well, why can't you do that with food? And it turns out that you can. So I I, I love that analogy. On... Took me a while to figure that out.
0: Yeah, no, it's great. It's wonderful. This character is so important.
1: So that's what we do. It turns out there are all types of different rules that you can make in that... People need to articulate for themselves exactly what the simplest set of rules that they want to follow are, and then they have to get over the fear of um, the fear of rules as opposed to guidelines. Um, they, they need mm-hmm. to be able to use words like never and always and understand that you're presenting that to your reptilian brain or your pig in the same way that you would say never to a two-year-old child, like, little Sarah, you can't ever cross the street without holding my hand. Never, ever, ever, right. ever, ever, right. Right. But we know, we you know just... in five or six years we're going to teach you how to do it, right?
0: Exactly, and just ingrained in some people. So I, I love the fact in your book you have um, all these downloads for people. You know, can you talk about that on your website and how people can find the book and, and what kind of plans are on there, food plans? and?
1: Yeah, well, if you go to com and you click the big red button, that will take you to the reader bonus section, and you can uh, download – not only a copy of the book in Kindle Nook or PDF format for free, but I also created a set of food plan starter templates. So regardless of the dietary philosophy you want to follow, whether it's, you know, whether it's point counting or ketogenic or, you know, high carb or low carb or macrobiotic or whatever it happens to be, there is a, there's a starter set of rules that you can take and modify for your own use. Then because I, also admit that this is a very weird thing in theory when you hear Kristen and I talk about you are saying, what is this? She's got a psychologist on her show and this guy has a pig inside of him and he doesn't eat pig slop and he doesn't let farm out. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: you
1: know, what, what the heck is going on? Um, it's actually, it sounds like it could be really harsh and crazy, but if you hear the actual coaching sessions, you'll see that it's uh, a very compassionate thing to do and You'll hear how it restores people's hope and enthusiasm, even if they've been struggling for a lifetime. So I wanted you to hear a bunch of sessions, and I recorded a bunch, and I distribute those for free. And there's a bunch of other things, but it's all available. Just go to NeverBingeAgain.com, click the big red free bonus section, and sign up for the reader bonuses. You'll get all that.
0: That is wonderful. And, And how do people deal with social interactions when they're trying to go through this, such as, you know, holiday parties, birthdays, you know? Uh, dinners out. I mean, our our whole world revolves around drinking and eating, you know, socially.
1: Yeah. Well, there there are two, and this is what my next book is about, actually, but there are two ways to address that. One is to recognize that you could loosen up your rules a little bit on Christmas and New Year's or Thanksgiving or really any time you want to, that there's a difference between walking into the party and – Thinking you're going to follow the same rules you always follow, and then losing it, versus walking into the party and saying, "Okay, well, on Christmas I'm going to allow myself one plate of any type of food that I want and one serving of dessert." Um, and if, if you if you delineate the boundaries of what you're going to do and you think of it as a celebration, there's actually research on this that suggests that if you feel like something is a celebration, your metabolism is a little bit higher and you're less likely to feel guilty and you'll have more control over your eating after that than if you go in trying to be too strict and, um, and stick with it, which is not to say that everybody should loosen up. Some, for some people, never is easier, easier than sometimes. For me, for example, I actually just don't eat chocolate anymore. I use, I use a conditional example where, where I started by eating it the last weekend of the month, but the truth is I evolved to the point where I just didn't want chocolate in my life, and so I, I haven't had it in years.
0: I have to have one treat after lunch every day, and everyone who knows me laughs about it, and that's like two pieces of dark chocolate. And I have discovered one at Trader Joe's, God bless them, that is it's 100% dark chocolate that actually tastes great. And wow. 100% cacao. Yeah, it's called Montezuma's or something like that. It's on Amazon, too. But if you ever wanted to wow. get back into your chocolate, there's no sugar in it, and, um, and it gives you that kind of kick and well-being, you know. So that's my one little... Thing that I'm hooked on, you know.
1: My sister takes out two little squares of dark chocolate from her purse, and then she folds it all up and saves the rest for tomorrow.
0: No, I understand some people can't do that. I think I get that from my mother. I also had to go gluten-free. I had a different issue with food for years that was undi- misdiagnosed and was uh, gluten intolerance, you know, which you could do a whole other program on that. But uh, I feel wonderful now because once I got the wheat and gluten out of my life, um, you know, I can eat other things that I couldn't eat before, so... So everybody struggles with their own different food issues, right?
1: So that, that's one part of the social solution. The other part is to recognize that, for the most part, the people that pressure you to eat a particular way, uh, the pressure is not as strong as you think that it is. What they're really looking for is they want to know that you're not judging them for how they're eating. They want to know that you're not have to hurt them in any way. It's kind of like breaking bread as two tribes come together. They're welcoming you mm-hmm. into the tribe and making sure, that mm-hmm. sure. And they're trying to give you trying to give you a welcome gift. And yeah, they so, want to share so, the
0: experience.
1: So what I like to tell people is you can offer them an alternative love gift that they might give you. So if my mom comes up to me and she says, "Hey, honey, I made your favorite chocolate cake. It's got the kind of chips that you love," and I slaved on it over all night, I will say, "Mom, that's so wonderful." I had too much at lunch though, I'm really sorry. Is it possible, maybe have some mint tea to soothe my stomach, that would be great. See, now I'm giving mom another way that she can love me and feel useful and welcome me back into the tribe. And I'm, I'm sidestepping the whole conversation about, well, you know, chocolate cake is not really that good for you and, you know, maybe you should slow down too. I'm sidestepping all of that or even implying it. And it's just a lot more comfortable to go through. So
0: sure, it's, it's the, like someone who doesn't want to have a drink, and they can have club soda, you know, or something, while you're having a glass of wine. So it's it's a similar. So at least you're sharing in the experience together.
1: Yeah, and you can offer them. You can go get them a club soda and feel like you handed them the drink, and they have something you're holding mm-hmm. in your hand. And there's a whole ritual of um, an exchange of gifts. Right. So they, well, there's a lot more to it. Lots more to it. But that's those are two simple tips to.
0: No, that's wonderful, wonderful. You know, we're, we're winding down on time, but I, I did want to ask, um, you know, what do you do in a situation when you have someone you love and you you want to help them because you see them, you know, gaining weight? And, I mean, what's the best approach, you know, to, to uh, gently talk to a friend or well, someone you love, a family member?
1: A lot of times the best approach is to lead by example. And so if you sharpen up your own diet and – you know, and, and you look healthier and act healthier and you have more energy and they can see that you're more present. And a lot of people find that when they clean up their diet, their skin starts to glow and their eyes look more clear. And mm-hmm. the best thing is if, if your friend starts to notice and asks you what you're doing and you come up with one simple thing that they can start with. like Like, could you come up with one rule that would help you? Like, I remember a guy who was 150 pounds overweight and he didn't want to, uh, this is actually not someone that I was coaching, but one of my one of my other people was coaching and he didn't want to restrict any food whatsoever. Um, and so we asked him one thing you could do that, you know, would make things better. What would you do? And he said, well, I'll just never go back for seconds. I'm going to eat as much as I want to at McDonald's or Burger King or any fast food joint I want to, but I won't go back for a second. And that just turned the ship around just enough that he got a little bit of results and he got motivated and he stayed with it for a couple of months, and he lost like thirty, forty pounds. And then he just added another rule. And um, you know, sometimes you have to look for that one small thing. You can't, you can't convince people to go on a diet or that this is a major problem. But you wait till they start complaining about some symptom, and you ask them if there's one simple thing that they could do, just one thing that they'd be willing to do that they know they wouldn't fail at, but not going to make them feel deprived. And mm-hmm. you. It's like Socrates once said to this traveler, this kid that was traveling who wanted to get to Mount Olympus, he said, how do we get to Mount Olympus, Socrates? And Socrates said, the way you get to Mount Olympus is to make sure that every step you take is in the direction of Mount Olympus. And sometimes you just got to get people to take that first step. You think of them like kindergartners in not right, like college students. Right, kids. Yeah, yeah.
0: Right, and hopefully they take the first step before the doctor gives them a warning. You know, there's so many so many terrible diseases associated with um With weight gain, you know. Yes. So the name of your book and your website, so we can tell all our listeners, and I believe you are on Audible as well, aren't you?
1: We're at Audible. We have paperbacks if you really want them. You can get the Kindle or the Nook or the PDF for free at NeverBingeAgain.com, and we'll also show you where to get all the physical copies. Never Binge Again is the name of my book, and the website is NeverBingeAgain.com.
0: Great, but I'm but I'm just confused. So though. I thought I looked it up for our visually impaired uh, listeners. Is it not on? You have not recorded it on Audible. Yes,
1: I have recorded. It, it is on Audible.
0: Oh, it is on Audible. Okay, great. That's oh yeah,
1: oh, it's on Audible. You it's know, we, we've sold three thousand copies on Audible. I think it's crazy. Fabulous. Um, yeah. wonderful.
0: Well, Glenn, thank you so much. I'm I'm almost finished with the book, and I just love it. And I I rec- highly recommend it to anyone. And for those of you out there struggling with, you know, with binge eating or just flip flop dieting, I hope you'll you'll check out Glenn's website, website neverbingeagain.com, and go get yourself a food plan, especially now before the holidays. Anyway, Second Vision. I'm Krista McDonald, and my guest is Glenn Livingston. And I hope you have a blessed day. Thanks for tuning in.